Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host, coming at you once again live. Well, it's not really, it's not really live, is it? We're, we're taping this. Um, so if you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, smart people doing smart things. And uh, today, I think it's one of the one of the smartest of them all, at least in a, in a long time. Um, say hello, Greg Larkin. Hello. Uh, very much on the nose there. Uh, <laughs> for those who may not know, um, you're you're a new author. But before we get into the book, um, are you a new author by the way? Or is this, this is my first book? All right, all right. We'll, yeah. talk, we'll talk about that too. Um, give give us a little bit of a one hundred and one on what a Greg Larkin is. Greg Larkin. Greg Larkin is a entrepreneur. Launched my first startup in 2005, and we got acquired in 2009. And during that process, it's an interesting time period. Well, the reason <laughs> we got acquired is that my first product launch was the first prediction that the then booming housing market was going to collapse. That was my introduction to being a product strategist. Yeah. And we pissed a bunch of people off when it first came out in 2006. But as what we predicted started to materialize, we made a lot of money and we got bought by a larger company. And I had to make the transition from startup entrepreneur to corporate entrepreneur. And uh, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. Really? Yeah. That's definitely. a bold statement. What? Why, why say it's the hardest thing ever? A lot of the superpowers that make a good entrepreneur good at, at what they do are they they you cease to to have those powers in a big company you you slam into this wall of intransigence this wall of can't yes and it's you know i think as a as an entrepreneur in a startup you look around you and you're surrounded by people you love doing work you love you're you're in awe of the mountain you're trying to move and you're inspired by the people you're moving it with and then you go to a big company and you're surrounded by a lot of people whose only ambition is to go from being a vice president to a senior vice president. <laughs> yes. They I need own an S. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get that S <laughs> on my card. <laughs> and um so I think just the the way in which people were wired if it was it, the way in which people were motivated by status rather than impact, I guess. Yeah. Um kind of took me by surprise and 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 this book is a lot about um how I learned how to be an entrepreneur, how to mm -hmm. move really fast, do some amazing product launches. Um, but kind of, uh, it's a, it, more than anything, it's a prayer, I suppose, because I don't want, <laughs> there are so many entrepreneurs in big companies that don't have a resource. Yeah. It can be a very lonely existence. It could feel like you're the only one in there. And so I really want this book to to form a community and, and, and mobilize other entrepreneurs to find one another and to do the best work of their lives inside of those companies. That's that's brilliant. Um, so going back to the the entrepreneurial side of you for a second, yeah, what sure. was that product that you created? And um, and then how did you, you know, what was that journey like over the, the course of what, four years, I guess? Yeah. Uh, so Innovest was a, an investment research startup based out of Toronto and New York and later on in London. Um, when they brought me on, they brought me on to uh, initiate coverage of the banking industry. Bear in mind, this was 2005. Yeah. So being a fintech startup at that time was sort of 
you wanted to be quiet about that. It wasn't cool. It was especially wasn't cool in New York where yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Wall Street was going bananas. Yep. So we constantly were this startup that pretended we were a Wall Street, you know, boutique research shop. Yeah. And um and then as soon as Wall Street started to unravel, we're like, no, we're we're gonna be an out of the closet startup and and be proud of it and wear wear those battle scars with honor. Yeah. And um, so the product that I was looking at, uh, the very condensed version, is essentially it looked at where were there pockets of borrowers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. where the amount of debt that they were taking on was growing at like a 2x the rate at which their wages were growing. Does that make sense? Yep. And then from that, we were able to tie it into like which were the banks that were lending them the money. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. were very Jeez. early to predict like Lehman Brothers, not going to be here for a long time. Bear Stearns, not going to be here for a long time. Merrill Lynch on life support. We predicted it all and we were the first to do it. Um, what did it do for you uh, like career wise? Was that, was that like a big boost or was it like, oh, that wasn't quite the impact I thought it was going to gonna have or was it somewhere in the middle good question um so initially it was scary as hell and i'll tell you what i mean by that um before the prediction actually materialized a lot of the banks also happened to be our clients and they were calling me personally and uh and they were saying you know have you ever been on the receiving end of a libel lawsuit oh, have wow. you ever been so it really scared the shit out of me and um, I, I'd say one of the. Did you, the, a fake must, did you have a fake mustache? Great. No, no, I don't, I don't know anybody named Greg. I had a fake mustache, but I had nothing to do <laughs> oh, okay. with that. <laughs> Shouldn't we all? I think that'll be the title all. of this episode fake, fake mustaches. Fake mustache, yeah, man. Yeah. But um, I'll tell you, one of the. To this day, my CEO from that time, Matthew Kiernan, he lives in London now. He could call on me and be like, hey, uh, I'm in a bit of trouble. Can you be on the next plane out here? Because I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, one of those banks called the both of us up. And uh, I could say who they were. It was Lehman Brothers. They're not here anymore. So that's <laughs> true. Um, and said, look, we're going we're first of all, we're a client. We're going to cancel our contract. Second of all, we're going to sue you. And Lehman gave us 20 minutes to pull this report down and uh, I called up my CEO Matthew and um, I'm like I, I was ready to, to to offer my resignation and uh, so I said listen I cannot believe I put you in this position I'm so sorry I am offering my resignation I'm happy to get out of your hair I I just feel like such an ass and um, he said, hold on, L let me just be clear. Are, are they uncomfortable with your facts or with your opinions? Because if your facts are solid, that's a very different thing. Right, right. Than if your opinion, you know. I said, look, the data is correct. They may not be comfortable with the conclusions. Uh, and he said, all right, good. He said, listen to me, let's get them back on the phone. Before we get on the phone, people don't fight you this hard when you're wrong. 
I will never as, in my statement. life yeah. as an entrepreneur, I am going to have that tattooed on my arm. People yeah. don't fight you that hard when you're wrong. Well, I was going to ask you too, like what, what did that teach you? And I think is, is also kind of reflective in the book or the, at least the thesis of the book um, about brutal honesty, right? Cause I, I think there's an honesty that comes with whether you're helping somebody invent and there's a truth that they yeah. don't see about their company. Or in this case where you're like, Hey, this is, it's valuable information, but even though you're resisting it, um, I think honestly that the biggest the biggest thing it taught me is that as an entrepreneur, you have to understand that opposition is validation. Hmm. It's one thing to gain, you know, three x your like monthly active users and to to like three x your revenue and 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 ten x this and ten x that. That's that's great. And that's extremely hard in its own right. But if you're really doing it right, someone who thinks they're supposed to be doing it already is going to feel threatened by you and they're going to come after you. And that is a fact of life. Every entrepreneur who's ever done anything that mattered has a story about that. Sounds, and, um, so I was going to say, it sounds like Clayton. Yeah. <laughs> um, which uh, the quote I wrote down was, uh, let's go back inside and kick some ass. And then, and then two months later, he retired. Right. Right. Or he left. Sorry. Yes. Um, so because I think it's a great example of what you were just talking about. Uh, but I would love for you to expound on that, like, uh, anecdote. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I've, I don't think I've ever used the word expound before. So uh, nor do I know if I use it correctly. Have but you, ever used but you get my drift, right? I do. Okay. And, uh, and congratulations. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's a good word. I wish we had like confetti and like horns and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I don't it. think you've ever used the word mazel tov before, but uh, mazel tov. Thank you. It's two firsts in two minutes. Yes. Yeah, so that was uh, that was one of the the most eye opening experiences later on in my life. Once I kind of figured out a bit about how to launch great products and 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 as an entrepreneur inside of a big company, and um, it was a, a product launch with PwC. Um, for those in your audience that don't know who PwC, it is a 179-year-old accounting firm that eventually became a strategy consultancy. Oh, so not the rapper? No, different guy. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he worked there first. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bump this, I'm going to rap. <laughs> and um, yeah, so one of the, the, the products that I launched with them was doing great. It was a, a cash flow management tool. Basically, um, it gave a lot of the advice that PwC gets paid millions to do to give to Fortune 100 CFOs and made it accessible in an app for everybody. Wow. And uh, we're at this launch party here in L.A. Uh, for, the, for that app. And in the room are like 100 tech executives from like Oracle, Microsoft, Google, across the spectrum. And they were so excited about this. This was sort of the product they were waiting for. And from the company, they were waiting for to build it. And this guy who is, uh, who I'm calling Clayton, that's not his real name. I figured. Um, that's, that's why I just blared it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, a guy who I'm also going to call Tom. Uh, uh, he was the guy who, who, who managed the whole project with PwC. He brought me on as a, a, an advisor. And... That was a good, it was a great product still on my like top five I've mm. ever built. And, um, but Clayton is seeing this punk, this guy who's like late thirties, 
me and yeah. and Tom work in the room and these and he, we gave the demo and people were like afterwards were just all over us like when can we set up meetings we need to get our like CFO on board like when you're coming out to Seattle you know it was everything you want a product launch to be and and uh, and Clayton was was thought that th- those were his clients and suddenly this, this upstart is standing in between him and his clients and he, he says to Tom uh, hey there's someone I want to introduce you to and he kind of steers him out of the room and once they're like five minutes away, he narrows his brow. And I'm, I could see this. And then afterwards, <laughs> I'm like, what was going on there, Tom? And he tells me exactly what words were said. Right. He says, are you fucking crazy? Oracle is my client. Microsoft is my client. I don't hear about this event. You come in and you're speaking to my clients. This is bullshit. And like, I've been in that situation. I've never actually launched an enterprise product where that right. didn't happen. The way in which Tom reacted was totally an inflection point for my life because he said, look, if you want to tell everyone that's excited about this product and if you want to tell everyone in PwC that needs this product to win, here's what I suggest you do. Go back inside, tap a fucking spoon on your glass and announce to all of them that I've been fired. In fact, I'm begging you to do that because I am sick of this shit. I'm going to go on with my life. You go on with yours. If you want me to be building as an entrepreneur on the outside the four walls of this organization, going after those same clients, let's make that happen right now. <laughs> and uh, and Clayton got went from like venomous to placating and he kind of motioned with his arms like, Tom, please calm down. Just get a hold of yourself. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I should have been more involved. I realize I haven't been as supportive as I need to. That That's on me. I didn't realize that this was being built. And let's go back inside and kiss some ass. And uh, Clayton retired two months after that. Wow. And we went on, me and Tom went on to launch uh, six more products inside of that company. I, I I guess in some part therein lies the entrepreneur's journey, right? It's yeah. and there's a balance between, uh, and I'm curious what your thought is on this. There's a balance between um, how much you build versus how much you pitch and bring people into the fold in the process. Mm. Um, you know, like my brother, for instance, works for the you know in the, for the city of Detroit, and he he worked on the whole LinkedIn moving their offices there. And he got that call from the mayor. He was like, why didn't I know about this? And he, he said to the mayor, like, the, every time I tell somebody, it, like, it, too many p- cooks get in the kitchen and yeah. then it never happens. Yeah. So, but there's a balance between those two, pissing somebody off and asking for an apology later or whatever. Like, you know, what is the balance that you've kind of seen or is there one? Yeah. Um, there is a balance and it took me a long time to figure it out. But I think the biggest trap that, every entrepreneur falls into and and the way in which companies tell people to be innovators is pitch your ideas, show me your ideas. And in reality, no one gives a shit about an idea. It's easy for an executive with power to say no to an idea. And so I I think um, my, my, my biggest advice and as it goes to that balance is don't pitch an idea, only pitch an outcome. And that's exactly in that anecdote about Tom. That's what he did. He, if he had asked Clayton, hey, would you mind if I built this new cash flow management app? The answer would have been no. 
absolutely not because Clayton didn't want Tom to be in that room with that result. Right. Um, but once the train had left the station, once he was generating incredible market validation and those executives were excited about it, now it's a risk for Clayton to stand in the way and say no. Right. And, and, and I, you know, the reason the book is called This Might Get Me Fired is because once you use your product and launch it very quickly, as fast as you would inside of a startup, and you get results that are mission critical for the organization to grow and to thrive and survive, if you don't use that as leverage yeah. to transform the culture of your organization, if you don't use that as leverage to make your supporters take a stand on your behalf um, or to convert skeptics into supporters or to mm -hmm. neutralize your opponents, you're going to fail. Yeah. That's the difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur doesn't have to deal with that. They don't have to change an organization. All the, all the things they have to change are on the outside of their company. An entrepreneur, your biggest enemy is your own company. Yeah. And, uh, and, if, and you have to use the thing you're building and build it to a point where you're more of a threat if you're outside than inside. Then you can start changing hearts and minds. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I've attended too many funerals, I guess, is the, the way I think of it. And when I say that, I mean. You've murdered I, a lot of people. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I go to the funerals. <laughs> after. Oh, poor fella. He, the least I can do is buy some roses. <laughs> that might get you fired, actually. Yeah, but you're not going to tell anyone. <laughs> 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 All right, so this metaphor of yours. Uh. Yeah, well, I, I think that was one of the hardest things for me to experience when I was like, I was the head of innovation at Bloomberg for about four years. And um, it, it was really hard for me to see incredible entrepreneurs build incredible products and just see them die and see the entrepreneurs who outside of that organization would have been rock stars, rock star founders. Many of them were rock star founders. Mm -hmm. In fact, I myself had a huge achievement as an entrepreneur. And over time, you kind of become deferential and suffocated and stuck right. um, and institutionalized. And that's the saddest thing you can see. Yeah, um, That's so much wasted talent and the extent to which those same folks kind of something inside of them dies after a while. And, you know, 10 years ago, I could kind of understand why that would matter. Yeah. Because your job as an as a responsible grown up was to to get a job at a company like that and stay there for life. Now, your job as a responsible adult is to participate in the disruption economy. The barriers to entry for an entrepreneur to kick the shit out of a company that cannot get out of its own way have never been lower. Yeah. And if you have that ability, if you have that superpower, and you're not constantly exercising and honing that muscle. Uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're taking more personal risk with your career, with your financial stability. Your emotional stability. Your emotional stability. <laughs> yep. And there's this miscalculation of risk and reward where it's like, well, you know, I'm not going to become that senior vice president. In fact, I might get a shitty annual performance review. Right. So I'm going to become less of the entrepreneur that I am.
But the, there are like, you know, I, well, let me back up. I think there are certain organizations who are, and there's few of them that are primed to harness the power of an entrepreneur or set of them. Like I, you know, I run the innovations team for OMD, right. And it's the largest media agency in the world. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to make that decision to go in-house, but I had to look at how they support this ecosystem because I've run into a lot of friends, as you mentioned, who have died internally somewhere because, you know, they're the one innovation person and nobody ever talks to them. They bring something awesome in and it's mm-hmm. like, uh-huh, that was cool. So anyway, right, it's just this this progression where they're not heard and they're yeah. not exercising, like you said, their their ability. So, you know, what are you, what have you seen, where have you seen some traits where companies have done a great job of support? this you know this individual or this group of individuals and and not hmm um so first of all i i actually don't think we've seen it happen full force yet i think we're at the beginning of that and the extent to which you have companies that have made the transition from we think innovation is interesting you see a lot of companies that are now saying we think it's important and you see a few other companies saying we think it's urgent. Very few though. Yeah. And the extent to which you have people doing innovative moves, but solving problems that don't really affect a company's growth or profitability means that you get a lot of wasted talent. That's sort of like, all right, well, we'll get back to you after we speak to our investors this quarter. Um, And so I actually, I don't think we've seen any company get this fully right yet. I think we've seen pockets and companies do it. Uh, But there's very few companies, I think, which have done a good job of understanding the costs of not innovating and have activated the entrepreneurs inside of their organization to solve that problem. Right. Um, And there's a flip side to that. You know, Google's in the business for Google and for some of and and Facebook and LinkedIn, like you mentioned before. If they don't, they're in the business of innovation. Yes. And I think they have an inherent understanding that for them to survive, they have to be as hungry as the entrepreneurs that want to steal market share from them. Um, And they that's in the DNA of the founders. That's where they were born. You know, I think scaling that is hard Mm -hmm. for the simple reason that it's hard to scale entrepreneurship. Um, But I I, clearly they're trying, but that's their job, right? Their investors expect that from them. Their organization is that's the premise of their organization. I think where where I live is a different domain, right? Like I just worked with Nestle and I worked with. Goldman Sachs, and I worked with Bloomberg. Those are really old industries. PwC, you know, those industries have been around for a very long time. And the people who are running things inside of those companies have been there for 30, 40 years sometimes. And they, they think they've got it right. And they're not typically open to the fact that they don't. Um, And to the extent that sometimes you find a guy, and I thank God have met these people who are like, they wake up with the zeal of the newly converted as it pertains to innovation. (laughs) 
Yes. And uh, and they're going to spread the gospel and God bless them all. I was going to ask you, because I mean, I think in the even in the case of Clayton, right, it's and it's you and Tom um, finding those internal stakeholders who will be champions for whatever your vision is. Yeah. Is that a, is it, is that harder than it seems or easier than it seems? Or? It's very hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard. And it often happens as an act of desperation rather than, hey, I've got this really exciting right. thing. It's right. like you have a rumor about a startup that was acquired and the CEO of that startup has become very senior inside of the organization that, that bought him. And you're like, listen, please, can you give me a reason to stay here? Because I can't, I can't go on like this. Mm-hmm. That's often when you you find your champion, you find your godfather, and that godfather is mission critical because you don't get stakeholder validation without them. Um, but that's that's typically not, you know, on, on paper it's like, hey, we're gonna be best buddies, and I'm innovative, and you're an innovator, and let's do it. Yeah. Um, no, it should be hard. Like it's hard. It, it, it's hard for them to say yes because they realize what you're trying to do might require them to spend their political capital in the organization in a way that might be of risk, put them at risk. Um, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I'll say his, I'll say his first name because I didn't get his explicit permission. But the guy who I, I my godfather at PwC was a guy called Dave. And he had been uh, a CEO of, I'll say this. Uh, he was the CEO of PwC Japan. I'm loving all this top secret information <laughs> we're know, getting. Right? <laughs> so he, he was the CEO of PwC Japan. Um, everyone in the organization with power owed him something, right? He, he was instrumental in kind of transforming that company from an accounting firm to a strategy consulting firm. Wow. And uh, n- no one could not return his call um and he he used that power for us you know and 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 not only that he was fascinated by what we were doing so we're like a bunch of pirates in a design studio with like sharpies and everyone's writing code and i think that's uh, uh, sorry i think that, i think it's important it, um it's kind of like yes the uh, in a position of power but also a fan Right. I think there has to be somebody who's like a fan of you as an individual and whatever is in your yeah. head that's yeah. out on paper or being built and the like the whole through line. I think that's the thing. We had we had fun together. Yeah. And um, he loved the fact that he finally had something that he could talk to his grandchildren about that he, they would think was cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were we were off the main office of PwC. We were working out of this like really beat up design studio that stank of Sharpie ink, and there'd always be some like <laughs> punk music playing. It was it was awesome. It was a completely random kind of vibe. <laughs> it's great. PwC, Sharpie ink, and punk music. That's yes. Yeah, I don't know if you know that, but uh, Joey Ramone was a co-founder of PwC. No. Really? Oh, shut up. Okay. My gullibleness just all like all poured out of me. It's too early. But um, he did. <laughs> Let me Google this. I'm gonna tweet it out. <laughs> the Ramon. You heard it here for 179 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Except then they were called Oscar Wilde, but whatever. But yeah. Well. Um. 
Yeah, he he was instrumental because every time he he every week when we were like planning, all right, what are we doing? Why is it a priority? How are we going to do it? Part of what we were talking about during that time was what are we building and how are we going to test it with the market? Right. For him, and it was instrumental and mission critical for us to hear him. It was who are you going to convert? Yeah. What's the guy who you're bringing into our studio to like fall in love with what we're building and to back us? And what are we asking them to do? Are we asking them to give us money? Are we asking them to have them introduce us to somebody else? Like what specifically are we asking those other executives inside of this organization to do to demonstrate their support for us? Um, and, you know, what, what wound up happening was that our growth with our customers was totally backed up by growth within the executive power structure of a huge organization that is otherwise really kind of impenetrable. Yeah. And it was sort of these two snowballs reinforcing one another and getting bigger and stronger and momentum building. Um, that's, that's powerful because that's the real change happening. A hundred percent. Do you, do you think that there's, um, is there, is there a part of the process that you love the most? Because I think there's a lot. There's there's the idea building. There's the product making. There's the political conversion. Yeah. There's like there's so many different components to go into make. And I think you have to love like the game entirely yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. order to survive it. Um, but is there one thing that you like that's I don't know kind of falls into your superpower? Or you're like, yes, this is where I you know this is the part of the process I like the most. Yeah, hundred um... percent. I like the political conversions, but only because they are in service of what I would call this like magic moment. And that's when, man, I, I'm, I have like a zillion, as soon as I say it, I get like goosebumps because it's, it's, it's amazing. Look, anytime you build something new, you never know if anyone gives a shit. You have a hypothesis about what people need and want and don't already have, yep. but that's all you got. And you know, I move very fast. So usually within a week, we're doing our first batch of user tests. Oh, wow. From like whiteboard, like boom, yeah. prototypes ready. Let's go. We got 20 people coming in today. Um, but you, those that first round always sucks. No one knows what button to press. Uh, <laughs> everyone's like, all right, can you explain the value of this app to a friend? And they're like, uh, not really. I don't really know why it's there. And you just, it's... I'm sorry, like, yeah, everyone fetishizes failure in the startup world. Failure sucks. I, I know. Failure's hard. And <laughs> yes, like, we, we, we recognize it as necessary, and there's, um, but it still sucks. And, like, as someone who's a leader of these teams, when you have that first round of defeat, especially in a company, which is a huge corporation that's not used to failing like that. Right. That fast. It, you have to be, like, Eyes on the prize, guys. Like we're we're gonna be fine, you know. And that that's um, that's a big morale. Like as a leader in those teams, yeah. like pulling people through what is can only be described as as rejection. Um, that's that's the mark of a good of a good entrepreneur yeah. leader and a good a good innovator. But man, that first time where that first test where you're like, all right, guys, we have about two weeks of, of budget left. I don't think if we don't make it, there's nothing to hang your head about. 
and you have that first breakthrough and someone like presses the button and they know exactly why it's there and you ask them at the end like flip the phone over how would you describe that to a friend and they're like it's going to solve a problem that no other solution solves i need it now when can i buy it <laughs> and when you have that first moment where someone's like fuck where have you been all my life <laughs> that i'm sorry man i would do that for free don't tell that to any of my clients but that feeling when you created something that the world has never seen yet and someone uses it and is able to solve a problem with it and sees it as important for them personally that's it man yeah and, and and as an entrepreneur, the way in which that first moment of val validation just sends ripples through the organization, through your team that really feels they're out on a limb. Um, you know, when you're able to pull some stakeholders like Dave into the next session where that happens again and yes. again. And they see that, wow, this was an idea three weeks ago. And now, like... Everyone who sees it with no prompting knows exactly what it does, how to use it, and why it's important. How important is speed? Because speed is the most important. Because, <laughs> you know, you see these projects in six months, a year, 18 months, or, you know, they just drag on and on and fuck people lose interest over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fuck that shit. I don't mean fuck that shit because that, I don't. Which chapter is that? <laughs> Actually, the second <laughs> chapter of this book is called If You Can't Launch in Eight Weeks, You Never Will. And mm. I believe that fundamentally. Uh, and what I don't mean is you're like building the Death Star in, in eight weeks. But I do mean is that you're getting to a level of validation with your user, with your market and with stakeholders where it'd be a really bad mistake to turn back around. Right. And if you can't hit that inflection point in that amount of time and you suffer from analysis paralysis or politics paralysis or you know, we have to build this in a giant, huge stack that's really much more robust so that we can accommodate seven and a half million active users. You're wasting your time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you're in an organization and the rule is never pitch an idea, only pitch an outcome, man, you you better be fast. You better demonstrate with with fundamental results in right. a very short amount of time that you're dangerous if you're on the outside of the company and they're lucky to have you. And the only way you get that is with speed. Um, I mean, I, and, and look, it always seems impossible until it becomes inevitable. Yeah. Speed is inevitability. Moving fast is, I don't know that we could stop this if we tried. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because my my innovation lens is usually like marketing, right? Like how do we use in, new and inventive ways to cut through the clutter and kind of even in some cases change the marketing landscape? Sometimes just like a blip, sometimes like, oh, shit, this is how they're going to do it for the rest of the yeah. you know, time or a, a period of time. I don't want to big up myself too much. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, man. For a week. Do it, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty fucking awesome. Um, in case you, you guys didn't know. I know. No, I knew that. <laughs> But I mean, you you touched on something with this idea of analysis paralysis, right? And I think in in, in my world is sort of 
um, hey, we have a slate of ideas that we're all like amazingly excited about, right? But then this one may bleed into PR, this one may bleed into product, this one may bleed into whatever, like, and so now that client has to go talk to a bunch of other people. And now we're losing this eight week, you know, window, which you mentioned, or this, like this, the speed, because mm-hmm. people, the excitement wears off. Um, have you ever come across a situation where you have to reinvigorate, you know, yeah. uh, people on a concept and like, how do you go about that? Cause it, it can like the initial thing, like then it comes to like, Hey, well, why don't we change it? Or why don't we do X, Y, Z? Like, no, no, you fell in love with the first thing. Yeah. I, I think the the invigoration is um, so first let me say you're right like in anything I know <laughs> no I'm scared <laughs> no I mean look uh, any the n- nature of anything where there's like a rapid burst of acceleration and validation is that well going from zero to 60 is one thing but then going from staying at 60 right just feels like you're in cruise control products are no different you know what i'm saying like you're, you're gonna launch something you're gonna go from nothing to something real fast and then at, at a rate that's never happened before mm-hmm. um and and then you have to just make sure it doesn't break <laughs> yeah and make sure you can kind of sustain it at that speed and then figure out how do you go from 60 to 120 and 120 to 180 it that's without crashing Without crashing, you know, <laughs> and that's a really, yeah. and, and eventually you're dealing with really big numbers. Yeah. Um, so that's, I don't want to make it seem like I've cracked that code because injecting that kind of um, excitement into it after a while becomes kind of hard, especially when you're dealing with a really big and complicated stack. Yeah. Um, I will say that you always have to let the, let the user dictate your excitement. And, and I, I think that's, that's the hardest part. That's the mistake I see happen the most often mm-hmm. is you get into this um, debate with really smart, really talented, really creative people, right. all of whom who have a, a different opinion about what's going to be the next step. And I think the, the, the right way to approach that is Sure, let's try it. And yeah. and how can we get that out to market in 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 a day? And how do we let the market's reaction determine who's right and settle the debate for us? Yeah. Because I'll tell you something, if it was your opinion and my opinion and no, I'm an expert, Chris, and no, I'm an expert, Greg. It's like we're we're going to wind up with a compromise that is so lukewarm that it means nothing to anyone. Including the people we want to reach in the market. And the extent to which, like, you know what? Shit. Yeah, cool. Go to, like, take Mike with you. Mike is the rapid prototyper. Have Mike put it out into the market. And and if we hit a milestone that we know we need to hit and we see some real, like, a real burst of growth, then you're right and I'm wrong and let's do it. Very cool. Um, There's no women in all your stories. But uh, <laughs> I'll throw Jane wrote, wrote in. No, um, there's <laughs> um, Jane and I work together. Yeah, right? that's what I saw that <laughs> page 72. Um, no, so, I mean, you've been successful on both sides of the coin, right? Once as, an, you know, or multiple times as an entrepreneur um, and then multiple times uh, as an entrepreneur. 
what sort of skill sets have you learned that are transferable from one to the other? You know, um, what can entrepreneurs borrow from entrepreneurs and vice versa? Mm, great question. Um, uh, I think the most valuable thing of an entrepreneur that an entrepreneur brings to the party is you have a, a really accurate understanding, even a visceral understanding of how fast you can move if you see an unmet need in your market and you want to serve that the people that that have that problem. Um, and that ability to just cobble something together with no budget, no rules, no resources, and yet somehow it's working. Um, that's incredible. And the extent to which entrepreneurs often are like, well, we have to wait to the annual budget meeting and we're going to have to ask. I think this is a two and a half million dollar ask at least. Like, no, if you were in a startup, that would take you three weeks and 50 bucks. Right. Um, so I, I think that ability to just move at startup speed and plant a seed and, and, and watch it grow. Yeah. Um. I wish I wish I wish every uh, entrepreneur had an understanding of that. It took me a while. Yeah. Um, I also think something that a good entrepreneur understands is um, you live the political reality of your product all the time. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs fall in love with their idea, fall in love with their validation, and and the. And, and, and lose sight of where it fits in the competitive landscape of investors competing with one another or being frenemies with one another mm-hmm. and um, other players in their space and the right alliances. The, the kind of political positioning of a startup, it, it's, the, it's the job that most startup founders hate the most. Right. And very often they realize that it's a mission critical part of their job only once they're in like a series c <laughs> you know <laughs> right right like wait a second <laughs> wait yeah. a second like i'm not the only one here and it's not just us in the market there's this infrastructure of internal management and uh, external competitive forces and it's 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 our job to sort of marshal them into alignment with one another. Yeah. And I think a lot of startup founders um, neglect that. I'm going to say one other thing on that note. Um, I've seen so many entrepreneurs leave because they felt alienated and they go out and then they realize that inside of their or alone anyway and they f- go outside of their company and they realize they're like they get 500 emails from like hey man i heard you're an entrepreneur me too and there's like suddenly you're aware that there's this like dormant sleeper cell of entrepreneurs <laughs> in the company and you all right. form a startup and you then start eating into market share of your- is that the activated entrepreneur underground that or is that that is the right? activated entrepreneur underground and uh and and that's that's an incredibly powerful coalition to build. Yeah. Uh, and the expat entrepreneur that goes on to be an entrepreneur and knows how to pull those resources and activate and cross fertilize them with startups. Yeah. Uh, that's a dangerous founder. 
you know, they're going to build something that I'll, I'll back that startup. Yeah. Well, I think it's something to be said about like, you know, there's always kind of like a chicken or the egg. Do you want to be an entrepreneur first, especially for like younger people coming out of college? Right. And it's like, do you want to go work inside of a company and really learn those intricacies of dealing with other people and the politics and seeing how they do it and really spotting having a better opportunity to spot a hole, you know, you know, where you can actually flourish? Or do you kind of go on that gut slash whim, the knowledge that I do have and the passion that I have and just like fight the fight, right? It's, um, and I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer, but it's just, it's a. I I think it's important to get your ass kicked, you know, and I don't think there's a right answer, but I think, um, at some point you have an understanding from going through making the wrong with doing the wrong thing. Right. Like I may not be right, but I'm me. (laughs) And and, and this is the the career path that's right for me. This is the people I need to surround myself with and the people I need to avoid. And this is the work I'm capable of when I, when I surround myself with those people. And I think once you're able to say, um, I need to work with people I love working, solving problems I love. Um, once you know how to answer that, yeah, then that's the right answer. And there's no right way to get there. Not bad for a Canadian international politics degree. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it all in Queens. There you Queens, go. New York. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? This, this doesn't seem like it was it. I want to be uh, like those dads. <laughs> oh man uh my first job out of college was uh i was a community organizer in new york city for the the new york blood center oh. and that uh and then were you out on the pavement with clipboards and trying to get people to go and, and was that okay um i'm sorry i ignored you <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of the thousands of people who just especially in new york just walk right past you all right this is kind of crazy i'm gonna tell you this story anyway so i was in charge of minority donor recruitment in new york city in brooklyn specifically and that basically meant that like every sunday i was at a church in like brownsville or east new york or some of like they were black neighborhoods yeah and i am not black and i noticed (laughs) <laughs> and I, w- I was like on stage every Sunday in, in these neighborhoods like, hey, can you donate blood? Every Friday I was at a different mosque. Yeah. At the like the Hasidic Jews, um, they knew me all of, like I I walked around in these neighborhoods and everyone knew who I was because I'll tell you something, Chris. What was fascinating about that job is like I didn't care if they donated blood. I was just happy that they were nice to me. that's almost like a life philosophy well i (laughs) you know it was other it was this total other you know and i grew up in new york city i grew up in queens but it was not um i would just go to all the meetings they had throughout the week with the men's group and the women's group and the youth group and whatever it was and like try to figure out you know how do you what makes you guys do what you do what gets you excited? What are you wrestling with? How can I be of service to you? Yeah. And um, and it was only at that point when you're like, all right, I've got points in the Karma Bank account. Then the community would start to respond. And that, 
I learned more from that probably than anything else. Um, yeah. The the extent to which uh, you can find people who are motivated by the same things as you are in the places you'd least expect to find them. Well, so it's there's also that skill set of like going into an environment that you are unfamiliar with and thriving, right? And, and I think every entrepreneur, entrepreneur faces that it's like you i'm talking to somebody i don't i have no idea who invited this person right whatever yeah (laughs) there's so many different things you come up against and i think like i my sort of foundation i guess in that regard is stand-up comedy so i did stand-up for like seven years and the same thing it's like you go into a room full of strangers and you're trying to enroll them in whatever you know you're enrolling them in donating blood like i'm like do you think this is funny so (laughs) so um but then when you turn that into like a business you know what you've been what you've been able to do it's like you can survive within because a lot of it is personality management you know too it's like it's empathy dealing with clayton in a way that you know he's going to respond like there could have been a had it not been clayton and a different personality type maybe that conversation would have been I've seen that same conversation go different. Right. Um, Right. uh, Man, you you were saying, oh, yeah, this is what I was going to say. I think the the thing that I I think most entrepreneurs get wrong is they they tend to, like, flock to the sexiest technology rather than the most unmet human need. And so everyone is trying to build, like, a virtual, realistic – artificially intelligent internet of things self-driving car with blockchain (laughs) and it's very crowded and like some of the products that i've um i mean the one of the one of the most exciting thrilling products i ever built was for a concrete company in new york yeah old school and and the entire purpose of that was because the dispatcher and the guys who were out in the field pouring the concrete at the building sites had no they were literally on nextel walkie talkies right um screaming at each other all the time and it was just this very thin layer so that whenever someone was stuck at a site they could press a button on an app and it would send a message to five other people in the field Mm -hmm. and to an artificially intelligent like chatbot basically and would say, hey, I'm stuck. This is the problem. Can you help? And the extent to which people started to get along again. Right. And it wasn't like the workforce fighting their boss and the boss fighting their workforce. It, it was just we were the first people to show up in that very unsexy market, which happens to be booming and growing. Yeah. And uh, we were the only people that ever knocked on the door and said, hey, I think we might have something you you, you might benefit from. I think, I mean, I think that's so valuable. You know, I, I, I think when you live in LA or New York or some major metropolis, it's like we all talk to each other about the sexy stuff. And then you go to Indiana and you're like, oh, wait a second. I mean, look, I grew up in Michigan and I remember a caddy, uh, of course I remember, but I caddied at one of the, the uh, top golf co- courses in the country. And some of the richest people I met to this day made like fabric for car interiors. Or yeah. we ha- we make corrugated board. It's like all, there's these other industries that f- far outperform financially and business opportunity than these things that we celebrate. Yeah. Um, but as we wind down, so um, the show is called Innovation Crush. Yes, we went over that in uh, 
in our briefing. Um, what have you seen out there that you are personally crushing on? Um, might be something in your own industry. It might be something, you know, a hike you took. I don't know. Like, what's the what's something that's kind of like, oh, what's I, on your heart? What's Greg? on my heart? <laughs> oh, man. Um, hmm. Uh, you know what? I'm going to tell you two things. Uh, so one of them is uh, Singularity University. You know those guys? Mm-hmm. Very well. Yeah. So I, I just started to get involved with them and um i i love what they're doing in terms of i associated them historically with like exponential technology and i think the extent to which they're digging into the human element um one of the statistics they shared with me which just blew my mind which is is that um if you look at the growth rate of 3d printers it's less than the growth rate of microbreweries. <laughs> that, that is a peculiar way of looking at it. Well, I just, you know, microbreweries are not using technology. Right. The reason they're growing is because they tend to be a product of the community they serve. Um, right. In fact, if anything, they strip technology away and do it in a kind of, it's, it's kind of this reversion to analog. And I, I think, um, the expense that that got me so excited like the extent to which um exponential growth can be a product of removing technology and connecting with someone human to human um i'm crushing on that pretty hard yeah no i I say the same thing all that's like innovation is not synonymous with technology no you know there's tons like the museum of ice cream is probably one of my favorite things that's popped up because it's just like you know, it's a brand new take on a what's a, what a, what a museum is. You know yeah. what the what a museum experience is. Um, where people's appetite are for entertainment, like who would have thought? Like, yeah, that would take off the way it took off. Um, and it's it, I, sometimes it's just a pleasant surprise that doesn't involve any coding. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um, uh, last but not least, um, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is. Never pitching an idea, only presenting an outcome. Boom. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Can I can I say one last thing? You can Chris? say as many things as you want to. I do have a dentist appointment coming up, Vince. But all right, well, I, I wish you a pain free dentist appointment. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I didn't I didn't write this book to just get a bunch of people to follow me on Twitter. I, I wrote it to be of service. Yeah. And um, so if if anyone out there uh who's listening to this feels like a stifled entrepreneur who feels like they're not having the impact they can um because they're working in a company and they feel alienated like i'm not joking i want i want to hear from that person i want them to do the greatest work of their life as an entrepreneur and i think they can do that and the reason i wrote this book is there is a way to do that um inside of a corporation because that company needs you to win as much as you need yourself to win. And so like anyone who feels that way, and I know that's a big market um, and they don't have many places to turn. I'm Greg at Bowery315.com. Email me, put innovation crush in the headline and let's get on a phone and let let me help you. Um, 
there's no we're in a time where it's the best time to be an entrepreneur in human history yeah and uh no one should should let that pass that is by. a beautiful gift uh thank you and the audience thanks you and like yeah it's, it's pretty awesome work just period and um kudos to you for having this vision and uh, like and actually just the emotional understanding of what the journey is like so many we focus on the the you know the the keynote right the, right. the, the powerpoint presentation <laughs> well i want to do that but really understanding that there's an emotional side to this yeah. whole experience and that, that people can connect with so um thank you and hopefully you do get more twitter followers out of you know just um um but yeah <laughs> anything else that's you at gregory underscore larkin there we go, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um anything else all that's right it. Um, this might get me fired is the name of the book. Thank you, Greg Larkin, for joining us. Uh, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.